I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you so much for uh, doing this with me today. I loved the series. Just absolutely Thank you, loved. man. And I think that your pairing with Mark, uh, it, it's just so good. Um, and I, I really, there's so much I want to get into, but um, I actually have a few other questions I want to start with because you're known, the, 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 the subject matter you tackle is, um, you know, it, it can be heavy, it can be deep and serious. And I want to sort of maybe throw a little, uh, I want to try to get you to laugh a little bit or you got you know, it. <laughs> throw, out, throw out some, uh, some, you know, do a little bit of other stuff. So do you remember your first movie or TV show crush? My first movie or TV show crush. I mean, dude, it was it had to be the Six Million Dollar Man or Lou Ferrigno, the Hulk, man. I mean, you know, and, but then I also remember Daisy Duke. I couldn't really watch it. And then, of course, Bo Derek. When I was a kid, I could not. I remember watching like 10 would come on TV uh, and I'd be watching TV with my parents. And just the fact that her last name was Derek, um, I couldn't. I I, I I just could not, I couldn't move. I was frozen. I was frozen under the Afghan blanket on my, on my parents' uh, couch. Just so embarrassed, mortified that, that she was running down the beach in slow motion. And uh, there's something about slow motion when I was a kid, like Six Million Dollar Man running in slow motion and that sound that, nah, 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 that was, and, and her on the, on the beach. That's, those are four, formative uh, memories on the also, screen for me. The other thing is, of course, that, I mean, the other things you were watching as a kid, nothing had slow motion like that. Exactly. I think it's step printing slow motion, a lot of that. I don't think that's in-camera slow motion. I think that's, a lot of that is, uh, like, Phil Solomon, to bring oh, yeah. up one of our film school references. Rest I'm, in peace, Phil Solomon. Yeah, um, uh, 100% with that. I was really shocked to hear that he had passed on. Yes. Is there a TV series uh, that you would love to guest write and direct? Or an episode? <laughs> yeah, like one episode of a TV series. You know, I, 
an episode of a TV series that I'd like to guest write and direct. I mean, it, I'd have to go back to my childhood again. It would be Miami Vice, you know? <laughs> that would be it. I don't know about anything that's happening now. Everyone, every, every, everything's in such control now. And, you know, I never thought about making TV in a way that I would uh, come on and just do one piece and leave. You know, I, that's why this whole, you know, series to me was, you know, I wrote and directed every episode and it was, uh, it was an extension of the films I had been making, making and, uh, you know, unified voice, but, but I, I can see, you know, there's so many great TV shows that, that have multiple voices adding to them. I just don't necessarily know how I would do that. Um, but I'd say Miami Vice, I'd like to come on in that, you know, take the reins from Michael Mann, see if I sure. can't uh, be his disciple. What movie do you think you've seen the most? Creep Show, George Romero. Really? Yeah. That was the first movie when I was uh, maybe seven. My brother turned nine, and on his ninth birthday, my parents rented a VCR. You know, this is before we owned our own VCR, and they brought a they they brought a VCR home for his slumber party, and they had two movies. They had Creep Show and Airplane Two, and we sat down with all my brother's friends, and I was just a little kid in the back, and we watched those movies, and I just I was scared out of my mind, and I was blown away that I was watching a movie at home. So two months later, at my eighth birthday, whatever seventh eighth birthday, I rented a VCR. Had all my friends over for a slumber party, rented Creep Show and Airplane 2. About four months later, April comes around, my family bought a top loader VCR and we got a subscription to HBO. And what was on? Creep Show, Creep Show and Airplane 2. And so I put in a tape on the whatever, the, the slowest mode, the six hour mode, the six hour mode of the tape, and recorded those two movies. And Literally, my fourth grade year when I was in fourth grade, I watched Creep Show every day after school. I brought a different friend home every day after school, and at at three thirty in the afternoon, watch Creep Show. Put in the tape, watch Creep Show until I had uh, you know, as a thirty kids in my class. So after thirty days, I was all alone, and I was just addicted to that movie. Um, you know, my fourth grade year, just watched it repeatedly. Have you ever thought about doing like a horror movie? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, in fact, in I Know This Much Is True, I got to exercise a little bit of, in episode four, I got to exercise some of this horror movie uh, obsession that I have inside me. Um, I mean, a lot of my mo- a lot of my work, a lot of my uh, deals with fear. You know, I'm, I'm as a writer, I'm confronting a lot of the things that scare me, um, psychologically, emotionally, uh, in in terms of like guilt of like uh, what could happen in a situation. Um, uh, you know, and this feeling of responsibility, and so you know, as a family member, so I put all of that into my movies, and I'm making movies about people, but I have this this gene inside of me that goes towards horror movies. And that as a, as a, as a kid and as a young adolescent, it was horror movies. I mean, the second movie I've probably seen more than anything is uh, evil dead Two: dead by dawn. Um, and you know, those movies, Texas chainsaw massacre, all of the other, you know, Romero films, um, Toby, you know, to Toby Hooper movies, um, you know, and then the Dario Argento films, I just watched on just repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, and then 
I discovered Scorsese. <laughs> and, 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 and that changed when I was like 15, 16, I think Goodfellas came out. And, I, and that then all of a sudden became my, my Bible. And from that moment forward, I, I pinned a, a picture of Scorsese above my bed. And I uh, used to uh, literally, you know, worship Scorsese my, my whole uh, rest of my adolescence. And that kind of filmmaking, Scorsese opened the door to, to everyone else for me, to, you know, to uh, Cassavetes, Charles Burnett, um, just so many other filmmakers that then I became obsessed with. And, but I still have that horror movie. And I, I do have one that, I, that I'm writing uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see if I have the courage to make it. I was going to say, it would be very interesting to take your filmmaking style and bring it and have the horror movie sort of in your space rather mm-hmm. than you going to the horror movie space. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, it is. I mean, you said in episode, episode four of I Know This Much Is True, there's this moment where he gets out of his hospital bed. And it's, I mean, that whole episode to me is is a bit of a horror movie. But yeah, it's, the thing with horror movies is I always thought that they were aesthetically, you could do anything in them, right? The, the, the playbook was wide open for a filmmaker making a horror movie. I mean, look what Dario Argento could do. Look what Sam Raimi does and Evil do. I mean, that's one of the extreme cinematic experiences still I've ever seen. Um, you know, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn is only a movie. There's no other translation. There's no book you could read that would give you that same experience. It is, it is, it is hyper highly cinematic. And so that's what I, that's, that's, I think that was one of the things that I loved about horror movies and all of my, all of my films that I made as a, as like a teenager and a high school student um, were always horror movies. You know, the very first movie I ever made was called The Bat Movie, and it was about a rubber bat that attacks people. And so... <laughs> it's, it's so interesting because in another reality, your filmmaking path is so different. It is. It is. You know? It is. Talking about Phil Solomon, I had a, I had a, a, a movie that I wanted to do, a vampire movie in film school, and I brought film the, I, Phil the idea and it was going to be a vampire movie called Suck. And he, I told it to him, I went to his office hours, and he basically told me if I made that, I would embarrass myself, and I would embarrass the school, and that, I, and that as a filmmaker and as an artist, I had to get more serious about my, my, my uh, ideas. And we sat down, and I went to his office every day and learned from Phil. He taught me how to tap into what this kind of the the surface of the story that I was trying to tell was all about. And so I renamed that movie Raw Footage and it was about capturing this traumatic moment on uh on on a home video camera and this kid who tr- captures this tragic moment of his family like the Zapruder film or something that in that uh, affects his uh who he is as a as a as a young man growing up um and uh you know phil helped me tap into that so i I think it's phil phil solomon's responsibility he steered me away from from my horror roots (laughs) yeah i'm I'm just i'm thinking all about that uh yeah 
I, I think that uh, a lot of people, I think, maybe don't know what films... I think a lot of people nowadays think that they can do... And some people can make movies without going to film school and others go to film school. I think maybe you've t- that's one of the examples of what you get out of a film school is a mentor, you know, shaping yeah. you when you're not 100% where to go. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, every artists, you know, need mentors. It's, yeah, there's apprentices in every field. You're going to be a, you know, car mechanic. You need to learn from someone. There's always a wizard. I mean, Luke Skywalker had Yoda. You know, we, we, uh, we all have, need someone, if we're lucky enough to guide us. Some, for some people, that's our parents, you know, that's, uh, you know, another figure in our life. And I think that's, yeah, it's crucial. I mean, Phil was definitely a father to me of cinema. We make to- we made totally different movies. I mean, he made ex- you know experimental avant-garde films that dealt with memory, and I think uh, I was really influenced by that. Phil, I talked to our mutual friend Jim Helton quite often, who you know has you know I met in film school, has been editing my work for twenty something years now, um, and you know we all talk about Phil is like our Jiminy Cricket um he's he's our conscious he's on our shoulder and even though phil has passed away um phil still talks to me um he's 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 like like wrath of khan he's wormed himself his his self inside my brain in a beautiful way and uh anyway if anyone has has not seen phil's movies i think they're out there on vimeo or something but he's, he's made some beautiful films a hundred percent. I remember watching any, yeah, I could go on another, uh, yeah. another thing. Okay, so jumping into why I actually get to talk to you today. This is a project that other filmmakers have been trying to tackle since like the nineties. I think Jonathan Demi mm. was looking at it. Um, mm. who else? Uh, Jim Sheridan. Um, mm. a few people were looking at it and, uh, I think that I don't think this, this material could actually work as a two hour film and be as effective. Um, do you think that the, the, you having six episodes to tell this story is really what was able to crack this material. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just look at the size of the book, I mean, when I first met with Mark back in 2015, he had actually, Wally Lamb had been, you know, who had wrote, written the book, had been involved in, you know, as this author involved in Hollywood and all these adaptations trying to get it made for all these years. And, Gina Prince Blythewood was involved too at one point and she's such a great filmmaker and um, they could have all done really interesting things but I think that just the the challenge that they probably faced was just scale you know it's just too much how do you take that thousand pages and and boil it down to to its essence you're gonna just lose so much and so when Wally, you know, after 18 years or something of trying to get it made, the rights eventually reverted back to Wally. And, you know, I think he was probably at a moment of that we all get to in this business of like, oh, you know, our dreams of making something into a movie are never going to never going to work out. And his agent said, well, let's start over. Who would you in your perfect imagination, who would you see as these characters as Dominic and Thomas? And Wally said, Mark Ruffalo. And his agent said, well, let me reach out to Mark. So she reached out to Mark and Mark said, oh, I'd love to read it. So he read Wally's book in a weekend. And I guess he called Wally and said, I'm going to get this made. And so then he's like, I got to find a writer and director to make it. So his first call was to me and I met with him and 
you know, we just talked about the scale of this thing. And we were like, this is, it's, you couldn't, you can't make this into a movie. And I know from doing adaptations before, uh, you know, how hard it is to boil something down to curate a book into, into a piece of cinema. Um, I also know from my movies like Place Beyond the Pines about my own personal ambition and how, I always want to tell bigger and bigger stories, right? And on Place Beyond the Pines, for instance, I had written that movie, uh, I had written an intermission in that movie. Uh, you know, there's the moment where you get Ryan Gosling's story, then you get Bradley Cooper's story, and then there was supposed to be a title card that said intermission. And you were gonna be able to take a break, go to the bathroom, get soda, whatever you did, and you come back and then you watch the third part with the kids. But that wasn't realistic in the marketplace. And I'm not, you know, I don't have the cachet of Quentin Tarantino to be able to release a movie with an intermission, you know, right now. So, um, so I had to change that intermission title to 15 years later. And I had to truncate that movie to be able to fit inside two hour and 20 minutes. And I love the cinema as I know you do. And I love going to the movies. It's like going to church, you know, it's a very, very, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a sacred place. Um, but unless you have a franchisable universe, it's hard to tell a more expansive story. I think movies now are like a perfect place to tell a story like Moonlight or something, right? Or like Brokeback Mountain, um, you know, or Blue Valentine, you know, those are movies that can be, that can be, uh, that were like, you know, look at Brokeback Mountain was a 27 page short story that expanded perfectly into a feature length film because you could expand from it. So Mark and I immediately talked about like, we can't, we don't have enough runway. We don't have enough canvas in, in a movie theater to do this. Um, so let's, you know, I'd been thinking a lot of years about doing, doing something long form for, for television. And I love the idea of being able to live with characters for longer. And, you know, because I always felt like the characters in my movies were like my friends. And I felt like for audience members too, they would be their friends. Um, and so the idea of making this series where you got to know somebody, uh, a, a person, people, but mostly this character, Dominic, and got to really know him as intimately as you could know, like a, your best friend or, or a family member, and that he would enter your home every Sunday night for an hour, and you'd get to spend time with him, that he could actually be a living, breathing, tangible human being in, in people's lives. And you know, that's, that's what uh, the movies always meant so much to me. The characters in movies always felt like I knew them. You know, it could be Travis Bickle or it could be, uh, I don't know, could be, could, you know, it could be anyone that I felt like, oh, that's someone that I, that I, that I understand. And it's like a real person that actually lives in the world. And so for this, over the course of six weeks, I thought I could create a real living, breathing human being. And and, you know, you know, I love actors and performance so much. And I felt like this could be a perfect uh, medium for me to explore character and performance. Um, and there could be moments that I could fit inside a TV series that I wouldn't necessarily have the capability to do in a movie. You know, for instance, at the end of episode two, there's like a 20 page there's a 20 minute scene. I think it turned out to be like 16 minutes in the, in the actual show, but a 16 minute scene inside this therapist's office 
Now, that was a 20-page scene on, this, on the script. I, there's no way I could ever devote, in one of my movies at least, a 20-page scene to a movie, because that's like one-sixth of the whole real estate that's available. But over six hours, you can deal with that dynamic. And so I was just, I was just thrilled by this opportunity to deal with, to be in spaces for longer periods of time, to be with characters for longer periods of time, and that maybe we could actually go on a life life's journey with them. And at the end of the, and I know it's, you know, I know that the series is, is, uh, can be relentless and extreme at some times, but one thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks after episode six came out is there is such a release in the in the show you know there is such a catharsis that this character goes through that dominic goes through there's actual um a glimmer of a change that this guy starts to have uh and it's really to me it feels honest and earned and i, I mean i have to tell you i had so many people from my life from high school that because i'm not on any social media but there's people i haven't talked to in 28 years that reached out to me that said that they watch the show every week and that they changed their life. And that, you know, I was so touched by that because, you know, I didn't know about releasing a show during the middle of a pandemic, what it would do and the responsibility of like everyone's isolated at home and here we are with something heavy and people want it. You know, I knew that the journey would lead somewhere, but just the response I had from people that from my life that came out of the woodwork that felt like, uh, it changed them was was kind of overwhelming to me so that was kind of what it was all about to me it was just yeah putting putting some real people in real moments and a real life on screen really real completely um i ended up watching the whole series recently um all very mm. close together because i am not i i didn't want to watch it every week i wanted to mm. watch it all because i I, to- I heard you created this as essentially a six something hour movie and i was like well i want to watch this as close as i can together did you ever did you have a preference about people watching it every week or waiting to watch it all i thought it was interesting what happened when people watched it every week um i you know to use a food analogy i thought of it as like if you go to a diner and not many people are gonna order an entire blueberry pie when you order some pie you get a you get a slice and if that slice is good enough, you're going to come back to that diner next week and get another slice. Um, you know, it's, it's, it can be a lot to just sit down with a whole pie. I mean, I, it can be gluttony. Um, so I, I was interested in this idea and I tried to shape every episode when I was writing it as its own, um, you know, every episode has its own identity. Every episode is about different things. Every episode has its own arc to it. There is also, I believe it, it can work in one fails, you know, one, you know, one uh, uh, gluttonous uh, uh, binging I, I, of, of the whole show. But uh, yeah, what was your response to it? I mean, I think it can work either way. Like, it, it, let me just say, I, one of the big inspirations for this was also Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, which I never, you know, which was made for TV, which I never saw on TV because I wasn't in Sweden in 1980 or whenever it came out. But I saw it at the Film Forum a couple years ago, and the way the Film Forum released it um, in their revival of it was uh, they showed 
part one and two in one day and then you know the other some other parts on another day and so I got to watch it in in pieces and I thought I really enjoyed like coming back to it it's also something about uh dealing with a right literature and film is so there are two different formats but there's something that a, a novel has right in it and it has it has moments of reflection right you can put down a a book and go to bed and consider it and wake up in the morning and then pick it up again and start again you know there's this idea of the chapters which allow you to reflect and the the most successful example I, I can think of in, in movies of chapters being used well is Lars von Trier breaking the waves um, where he has those inner titles uh, those chapter breaks which allow you to digest what you've seen and to reflect upon what you've seen and to prepare yourself for the new stuff so I thought this idea of chapter breaks was a good thing but I'd be interested from you. So you saw it, you watched it all that, that, in one that, fail a, swoop. That, no. That's the thing, I didn't. Um, I just didn't want to watch it. I'll just tell you what I did. And this is, I try not to put myself yeah. in interviews like this, but I watched the first two episodes back to back. And then I did mm -hmm. the next day, episode three, short break, uh, episode four. And then the next day, episode five, the day after episode six. So I didn't yeah. watch them all back to back, but I watched them all very close together. Um, yeah. And, but that's how I knew I wanted to do it. Um, I think that the material is very heavy to sit down for six and a half hours and do it mm. all, although I could do it. Um, I just, that's just the way I did it. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds like it works. I mean, look, there's no right way or wrong way to do it. That, that seems like it reflects my experience with Bergman, which also can be, uh, you know, heavy, you know, sure. heavy viewing. Um, but I do think when you're dealing with heavy stuff, sometimes those moments of reflection are, uh, yeah, can be, can be important, but I've heard from friends now that have watched it, that, that binged it. And, uh, you know, I think it was intense. The problem with binging something that's so intense is sometimes you can become oversaturated, you know, um, uh, with, with some feelings and I think you know, there's no way I don't know anyone who would ever sit down and read the thousand page book all in one sitting it's just it's a lot it's a lot that it's it can be a lot to take in so I think space is is good and I think it's one of the one of the you know I was excited to sign this deal with HBO too because that they were just you know on one hand just so great to work with but I also really love um their programming model I, I love how, you know, the, the I don't want to say the old school approach, but I love how things are unveiled week after week. Um, I don't know, it brings me back to a nostalgic place of my childhood of not, not being able to wait for that next Knight Rider episode to come out. Sure. Listen, <laughs> yeah. I, I love HBO. I think what you're saying, though, and something I've noticed is I like going to museums. And I have found mm. that I can't spend eight hours at a museum because I mm. just lose, I lose sight of the, like the brilliance in front of me. You know, I'm just mm -hmm. saturated too much with, with the paintings and the everything. So for me, yeah. you know, a few hours and then I need a palette cleaner and then I, you know, or palette cleanse, whatever. That's yeah. just for me, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, you go to one wing, you know, you go visit the, 
the renaissance wing or something and then you take a break take a time out come back later completely uh i also listen i think there's i love that hbo does it every week because there's something to binging but i i do like the ability to talk about it throughout the week but um look i got a ton of fucking questions so let's jump into some other stuff which is um in the writing process you when did you guys realize that um when did you realize you wanted it to be six episodes was there ever talk of four or eight or was it sort of like write it and then let's see where we're at and we'll figure out the episode count we pitched them 13 episodes but that was my very broad strokes that was that was almost uh my adaptation of the book um chapter for chapter in the book that was my early breakdown of what if we were filming the book would be and HBO came back and they said, can you do it in six? And I said, hmm, let me think. And so I took about six months to think about how I could do it in six. And, and they told me, they said, look, we love the book, but we want this to be yours. And I had a meeting with Wally and I talked to him, Wally Lamb, and I talked to him about it. And he said, Derek, I love your movies. I trust you. Uh, he was like, the book is the book. It'll always be the book. Make this yours. And so I, I got permission from HBO and I got permission from Wally to make it my own thing. So I spent that six months imagining what a six-hour version of this would look like. And, um, you know, and it was kind and of, I didn't quite make six hours. I got six hours and 20 minutes. Sure, exactly. <laughs> because that last episode is a little long. But I thought it needed to be longer because the resolution, I didn't want the resolution to be cheap. You know, I didn't want the resolution to just be a nice bow that tied itself together. I wanted, I wanted to really have time to experience this kind of glimmer of hope. And, you know, if you look at Wally's book and, his ending of the book and my ending of the show they're 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 different you know there's there's a lot of resolution in the last chapter of of Wally's book and I felt like it was going to be too much resolution too much of a of a bow that in a book it it would work because you'd spent these months reading this book or however fast or slow you you can read but and it would be fulfilling at the end of the book but when you're watching a linear movie happening in real time, there's too much resolution. You know, Dominic becomes like a gazillionaire because he's really related to Ralph Drinkwater and he gets all this, you know, money from the casino and he ends up adopting Joy's baby because she died and had HIV and um, him and Dessa get back together for sure. And then he turns his grandfather's house into a battered women's shelter. There was so many things that were happening at the end that I thought I didn't, my favorite, I looked to my favorite movies and thought about resolution in my favorite movies. And I looked at films like Five Easy Pieces, which has to me one of the greatest endings or a very similar film in tone, Manchester by the Sea, which ends on a glimmer, right? A suggestion of change, a suggestion of where a movie can lead to. And I had, you know, ended Place Beyond the Pines and Blue Valentine in a similar way where it's it's an open ending. You're you're it it allows the audience to still be a part of the story when the 
when the credits roll and that the audience can kind of project their own, um, you know, at the end of, I know this much is true. We're not sure if Dominic and Dessa get back together. And I love the fact that the audience can have, they can project their own hope into that relationship and their own dreams. And it just reminds me of what happens at the end of, you know, those movies that I love so much. They look at the end of the thing. If you want to go back to horror movies, John Carpenter's the thing. They're just going to stay there until, uh, you know, until the fire burns out and you, you can know what's probably going to happen to those two guys and what's going to happen to the world when springtime comes and the rescue parties come back and probably that disease is going to travel to the rest of the world. But that's none of that's in the movie. We, as an audience, we, we make up that in our imagination. So I think the audience's imagination in cinema and in television is a very, very valuable uh, tool and asset. And as an audience member, before I was ever a filmmaker, I, I, I try to always remember what it what the experiences uh, of being an audience is like and and what i love about being an audience no, completely i think that's one of the reasons why the series works so well for me is that you're not that it isn't um hollywoodizing hollywoodizing if you will uh dominic and he's mm. all of a sudden having these dramatic revelations you know he obviously has gone through a lot and mm. he's not gonna have like you know an instant change to anything you know yeah he's 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 you know what I, I mean, but I want people to watch you have not, but I'm very curious. Yeah. Uh, so you, had, you, you released something at six hours, 20 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. How long did you have like a much longer first cut of all these episodes or was it very tight to what you actually released? Yeah, it was, it was pretty tight, you know? Uh, I mean, the cuts would range anywhere from an hour and 20 minutes to an hour and five minutes, our first cuts of every episode. Um, just like my first scripts for every episode were, were around that same, you know, they were you know, always 70 pages, uh, you know, 65 to 80 pages, something like that. Um, uh, you know, and then I would, you know, I, I, I was able to, to condense or curate the scripts and then in the editing we were able, you know, it, it we edited this thing very I, I was shocked that we got it done honestly Steve because uh, as you know with Jim and Ron Patain who I work with all the time and you know editing um, we are uh, I, we're slow I, I, some people would say slow other people would say thorough um, but I shoot a lot of footage and on this I shot two perf 35 millimeter film stock and we shot 600 hours and wow. one of the things that Jim <laughs> wow. and Ron and I, yeah, we were, our motto on set was let's, let's keep Kodak in business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we crossed, when we crossed a million feet, uh, the crew, the whole camera crew, I left set that day. And I don't know if you've ever gotten a pie in the face, but I got seven pies in the face from the camera crew. And it hurts to get a pie in the face and <laughs> they i couldn't tell if it was love or aggression but i was bleeding my you know because those those aluminum pie tins they actually can cut you um anyway so i was bleeding through the cream anyway uh so we shot a lot of film and 
one of the one of our my disciplines in the editing room and Jim and Ron and I have always done this is watch everything because we believe in gold and the discovery of gold as we're as we're editing and so we did we watched you know I wrapped shooting after 115 days of shooting in October and we had to, you know HBO had wanted us to deliver and have it this on air in April and I sat down with the editing team and we brought on some new editors we brought on Malcolm Jameson and Nico Lewin and we had a great post uh we had a great uh VFX post team uh led by Eric Pascarelli and we were all in a in a home in this old Victorian home in Ditness in Brooklyn and I got you know I finished production I got in with all the editors and I said I don't think it's realistic that we're going to make our deadline but we have to try so we have four weeks to get done with episode one and two. They had been working and going through everything. I was like, let's just, let's see what it looks like. If it's no good, we're not going to release it. You know, if it, if, if it doesn't work, if we're not there yet, we're not going to release it. Somehow, miraculously, I don't know how it happened. And I think it was because we were so clear, even with those 600 hours, the, the cream or the gold rose to the top, um, that we we just we made we made these decisions that were just we didn't second guess we didn't get too precious with it we just moved forward and made made decisions and trusted the script and trusted the performances that we got and when we sat down and watched it we thought to ourselves wow let's see what other people think of this and so we sent it to HBO and to the producers and and I remember my producer Greg Feinberg was like holy shit we're gonna we might make it <laughs> and, <laughs> And I was like, yeah, let's, let's keep trying. Who knows? You know, there was still, you know, as, as massive as this, as the project is in six and a half hours, you know, there's like, there's like a thousand visual effects shots in the, in the show, um, which people don't really notice because we all, you know, we tried to make ourselves invisible. You know, I think as, as a, as a storyteller for me, the most, you know, I told you about my my love for performance. For me, performance you know, is is the main way that the story is told. It's uh, just like in Blue Valentine, the story is told through actors. You know, the feelings are expressed through performers. I really do believe that people watch movies to watch actors and performances. And so, as a as a as a creative force behind that, as the coach. I tried to make everyone else, all my other, uh, you know, play all my other coaches, you know, the editors, the cinematography, the, the visual effects, the production design. I tried to have them all be invisible and serve the performance and let the performance be the thing that, 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 sh that shined through. And so with that, you know, with that kind of methodology, it just, it just worked, but there was a lot of, I, I still don't know how we did it. Just everyone got on the same page. It was a it was a beautiful, beautiful team. I feel very, very fortunate. Well, the other thing is that um, you know, look, the you want to keep HBO and everyone who financed this thing very happy because obviously this is really tough material and they championed it. So if they want it in yeah. April, you gotta find a way to get it in April. If we weren't happy with it if it wasn't working i think hbo would have been the first to agree okay it needs more time you know yeah. and i've been involved with plenty of films place beyond the pines the editing of place beyond the pines you know traditionally as a 
as a director, you get a 10 week director cut making a movie. After 10 weeks, I hadn't even watched all the footage of Place Beyond the Pines yet. I didn't actually show my first rough cut of Place Beyond the Pines for six months. I, I, the financiers were on ice for six months. And they, they showed up to a screening of Place Beyond the Pines. And I'll never, I was a little late because I'd been working all night. And I'll never forget, I walked into the screening and on the screening room, uh, was a slate that the well-intentioned assistant had put on that said, Place Beyond the Pines, first rough cut, total running time, three hours and 32 minutes. And so here was my financiers who had waited for six months. They had never waited that long to see a rough cut. And now my rough cut was three hours and 30 minutes. And I was it had to be a two-hour and 20-minute film. Um, I think they were all preparing to fire me. But when they saw it, they realized what, you know, they realized the potential of it, I guess. And they, they stuck with me and let me finish my process. And so I think the same thing would happen with HBO. They're so artist friendly and so collaborative. Um, they just kind of set out a, a goal for us. Like, can you, can you make this, can you hit this bullseye for us? And we were just able to. And I think it just goes back to, you know, we you know, maybe Jim and Ron and I, and the addition of Malcolm and, and Nico, we just uh, uh, we just learned how to how to run the race better. Yeah, I don't know. This explains a lot. I was wondering when I saw four names for editing, I was like, uh-huh. hey, four editors. I'm like, or Derek had four editors on this. I'm like, that's a lot of editors. And I'm like, uh-huh. well, now that that makes a little more sense. Well, I always look at you know, heat is always one of my is one of my main inspirations we talked about my advice earlier but heat was a really a huge inspiration for this show uh mostly in the use of uh uh it when i when it came to the twinning aspect of of the show because i was really inspired by that scene in heat where de niro and pacino meet up in that diner in the middle of the night and i was always blown away by that scene because you never see their faces on screen so you get these two titans of acting but their faces are never share the screen it's always shot counter shot and i thought like well it's flip sides of a coin and you can't you can never see both faces of a coin at the same time and i thought to myself well that's how i'm going to make this movie too it's going to be just flip sides of of a coin and i'm not going to have to resort to all the technical trickery of twinning um eventually I, i i i adapted that and changed it but anyway heat there's an, I think there's five editors on Heat. So there's a way to edit um, and get a lot of rooms going and, and uh, still maintain a vision. Um, and, you know, uh, and I, you know, as an editor, I'm always in the editing room too. I always have my own uh, machine set up. And so most, most all the cuts come through my room at the end and I'm able to unify everything and see every cut. And um, yeah, anyway. I think a lot of people don't realize what it actually takes to 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 put everything together. But I want to go backwards. Um, was there discussion about shooting digitally at all, or was it? Were you always this has to be film? And when you're shooting that much footage, that that has to be a cost. That's not cheap mm. to shoot that much footage. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, you know, it was a discussion, and it's always a discussion to shoot. Uh, and and the assumption more often than not these days is that people will shoot digital and 
I have a little bit of an issue with that being an assumption because I love digital. Um, I've shot plenty of things digitally. Blue Valentine, I shot half of that movie on a red camera. Um, but that uh, format was a choice. Uh, I used, you know, I believe in using the digital format to, uh, as a tool to better tell your story or better uh, express the story that you're telling. Um, and I think it's a choice. Now, all these years ago, like I heard, I don't know, the, you know, people would come out and declare film is dead. And I, you know, I, that always just rubbed me so the wrong way because film is irreplaceable. And I'm not saying it's the only format. Like I said, I love digital, but for this, you know, this, this story takes place in the nineties, in the eighties, seventies, sixties, fifties, forties, thirties, twenties, tens, right? Pretty much the whole 20th century. And in none of those decades, in none of those eras, was there HD, you know? If I was to shoot on a format of those, of any of those eras, it would have to be for the 90s, some kind of SD video, um, some standard def video. And, you know, when I shot the 70s, it would have to be like whatever William Eggleston shot Stranded in Canton on. Um, and what would end up happening for me is I'd have to choose different formats to illustrate the different times when film was a constant throughout all those throughout all that time you know film was around for the entire 20th century and so I thought film was a way to unify all of our time frames um, I didn't want to differentiate between the time frames I didn't want to have anything except the production design uh, change in these time frames because a lot of it is about history and memory and a place you know and you get to see you know this home that Dominic Lit grew up in you get to see his grandfather actually building that home and so I didn't want that to be that far removed because it was only 30 years before Dominic was born that he was building that that house and so I wanted to unify it and I thought that film could really unify it and you know HB and beyond that also as a as a filmmaker I believe in the power of film uh, creating an urgency on set. There's something with digital, uh, depending on what camera you use, but you can shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot on digital. Whereas on film, you have uh, a magazine, which can be a different length. Sometimes we'd shoot a thousand foot mag, which would give us a 20, 22 minute load. And sometimes we shoot on a 400 foot mag, which would give us a nine minute load. And depending on those, the size of those loads, it, it gives a, it, it creates like a shot clock. And sure. so as a, as a, as a director, I think I usually, I use a lot of sports analogies. I think of myself as the coach, my players are the actors. And so if I have a nine minute shot clock and I have my actors come into a scene, they know they got nine minutes on the clock to get something done, to get some points done. Um, and to me, it, it just, it, 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 it raises the angst on set it it's like a stick of dynamite to me film is like dynamite you light the fuse and you got this much time and oh you know the fuse is is almost out it's almost out you better get something before oh it's over okay you know and on digital the you know i, I on blue valentine when i shot digital i was shooting like 45 minute takes 
In, in fact, in, there's there's not as much urgency on digital. In fact, one moment Ryan Gosling actually fell asleep during a dinner scene in Blue Valentine. For real, I got footage of him falling asleep because digital uh, can find the. I, I think digital can find um, the erosion of moments in a beautiful way. Uh, film can find the spark. Um, and so, you know, I brought it to HBO. There was a cost issue. Um, HBO was a little bit uh, on the fence about it. You know, they, they would have rather initially that I shot digital. And I said, well, let me just shoot a test for you. And so we shot a test. We got, we got an Alexa and we got a Airy 2Perf 35. And we put the cameras right next to each other. And we shot the same test with both cameras and we tried to make both cameras look the best they could right and we made a split screen and we made this 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 uh this reel to show hbo and just said pick which one you like better and it was unanimous for at least for the story i was telling i'm not saying for everything but for the story i was telling film was clearly undeniably the winner I will say one thing that happened. There was one thing I realized on digital and, and film was I was shooting uh, my friend Gabe Fazio, who was Mark Ruffalo's uh, acting partner, you know, in all the twinning scenes. And I was shooting this test on film and on digital of him, and he was leaning up against a bridge. And on film, it was the shot of this guy leaning up against a bridge. And on digital... I noticed that there was an army of about 10,000 ants crawling on the, um, <laughs> the, 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 the architecture of the bridge and walking towards Gabe. And sometimes digital can see too much. And that's great. I realized that that, that could be a really interesting tool for something. But I didn't want people to watch the show and be looking at um, the ants. I wanted them to to be in more of this painterly world. No, no, completely. I've actually I've recently watched some stuff in IMAX laser projection, and I was sitting next to the director. And after the screening ended, he was, I do a screening series in LA, and we showed something that was a number of years ago. Uh, came out ten years ago, and he said that's the clearest I've ever seen the movie. Like, mm -hmm. as in you you might make different choices if you know it's going to be that clear. Yeah, sometimes, again, when we start talking about the imagination of the audience, to see everything can strip something of its mystery, I think. Um, it can lose a little bit of the mystery. And, I, and what I love about filmmaking is that mystery and this idea of the persistence of vision. And when you're watching a movie or a TV show shot on film, you know, you have this magical shutter. So you're seeing 24 frames a second, but you're also seeing 24 frames of black per second. Your brain chooses not to see those, right? The the the, the flicker of the shutter, and but it's still that's that's it activates your brain in a different way. And there's just something about uh, 24 frames a second film shutters shutter degree, you know, shutter angles that that uh, does something to our subconscious. And, and uh, I wanted to tap into that. Completely. I want to, I want to touch on episode five specifically, if you don't mind. Um, 
Can you can you no, actually? Sure. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Oh, I just want to oh. make sure. I want to make. Are, are your earbuds Thanks, dying? Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's okay. I, I just put I put on the speaker. Yeah, you got me. Uh, yeah. Are the are the earbuds dying? Damn Apple. They are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to specifically talk about episode five because it was I haven't read the book, and so when that episode happened, and you go back in time. I was a not expecting it, and B, it was so well done. Um, mm -hmm. But that's also you're making something like that on a on a budget. So how did you pull off that transporting backwards in time to everything you did in that episode? Yeah, that was a very uh, important element of the story for me. As 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 you know, in my past work, I've been dealing with this idea of legacy a lot, and. Uh, familial trauma and the things that get passed on throughout the generations. Um, you know, that's what Place Beyond the Pines was all about. And I was, you know, I have an Italian-American uh, heritage. Um, and it seemed like every Italian-American movie that I had seen dealt with like the mafia, you know, or wise guys in some way, you know, some of my favorite movies, Goodfellas, Godfather, you know, it's all mafia Italian, but growing up Italian, I didn't, that wasn't true to my life and all, you know, my wife who has Italian heritage, that wasn't true to her life. And Mark Ruffalo who is Italian American heritage. That wasn't true to his life. He was, we didn't grow up with gangsters. We grew up in Italian American households and we grew up with something more a more specific version of this kind of training of masculinity within that culture. And it was something that we, you know, for Mark and I, we carried with us into our adulthood and we were really, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, confronting it, right. As men, um, this idea, this masculine upbringing, this masculine training as Italian Americans that we had, and so I was, I was always fascinated with going back in time and kind of uncovering my own family history. And I had a great grandfather that moved over to the states from uh, from northern Italy in in the twenties, and this guy was a very dastardly character. Um, it's only a few stories I know about him, but those stories are so dramatic uh that they 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 uh they hung over my whole my whole upbringing they hung over my 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 grandfather's life they hung over my father's life they hung over my life and now i have two boys of my own and i know that that guy that great grandfather made these choices that are still very very much alive in 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 my world and so i've always wanted to go back in time and uncover those 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 choices that he made and this idea of this trauma that could carry down through generations. And, you know, when, when you asked the question about could this ever have been a movie, that's the first thing that would have been cut from a movie version. In fact, you know, the first time I ever read this book, because I'm a, I have, I, I have struggles with reading. Um, the first time I ever read the book was actually a book on tape and the book on tape that I listened to didn't even have the Italian section in it. They just, they cut it out. Um, it would be the first thing that people would want to cut out. But to me, it seemed to be one of the most interesting parts of this character's uh, kind of search for, 
homeless in himself is to kind of break this cycle of, you know, it's, it's, it's recognized as a curse in the story. But what that really is, is, is family trauma um, that that's passed on through the generations. And so, um, you know, so to, to execute that, the first thing I had to do was find actors, you know, who felt like they were from another time. And I did, had no idea who I was going to cast in that role. And then I saw Matteo Garoni's Dog Man with uh, Marcello Fonti. Sure. And Mar- Marcello is truly from another time. Um, he grew up in Calabria. He's one of nine children. He is, he's, he's from the past. You know, he's, he's, he's particularly modern in a lot of ways, but his face, his thoughts, he is, he is a, he is, he's a, he's a, he's a treasure and a relic and I've never met anyone like him. And when I saw him on screen, I went to, I reached out to him. He happened to be in New York. Uh, I've met up with him. He doesn't speak, speak a lick of English. Um, and when I met him, I immediately said, that's that's grandpa, you know, but it's against type too, because Marcello is a hilarious. He's a comedian. I mean, he's like the heir to Roberto Benigni. Um, uh, he's a, he's, he's a clown. Um, and here I was writing this character, this dastardly grandfather, this evil man who, um, traumatized his family for generations with the choices he made. And, and here was this sweet guy, Marcello, um, and it's it speaks a lot to his the power of him uh, his, his power as an actor to be able to deliver that performance. And then you know in terms of our production design, you know, and then there was all these other great actors that I found: Roberto Regano, uh, Simone Copo, um, uh, Irina Muscara, um, so many great Italian Americans. You know, I went over to to Rome and cast all the Italians there, and you know HBO brought them all to America and we, you know, because it was important to me that these were people that were not Americanized, right? They weren't necessarily, they weren't Italian Americans already. They were Italians because this is about the immigrant story. And so they had to be first and foremost Italians. Um, And, uh, and we tried to, you know, my last film, Light Between Oceans, was a period piece. And there was one thing about the period piece that always was struggled to me because I'm always trying to find the um, the imperfect picture, the dirty picture, you know, like the, the imperfect family photo. And when you go back to research, you know, so many, um, uh, uh, you know, period photos – everything feels like a BBC drama, not to throw shade on that, but everything feels so clean and put together. And I wanted to find the dust and the dirt and the sweat. And, you know, one of the things I talked about with my production designer and costume designer, um, you know, Kasia uh, and Imbal was that in all of our old photographs, there was no one had any facial hair. Um, And I thought to myself, well, I want to make a movie about the primal human experience and these people should be you know they're 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 almost like the cavemen version of our of our characters later on and the the primal versions of our of of this italian american upbringing and so we just tried to make it as raw 
and as dirty and as uh, sweaty. I mean, in fact, we were shooting one scene when, you know, Domenico goes and gets his brides at, at, at the cousin's house. Sure. And we were shooting that in the middle of the summer and we had air conditioning in there for the crew to keep everyone sane. And I was just like, there was no air conditioning in 1915. When this scene is happening, we have to kill the air conditioning. <laughs> and I'm I was sure like, every, everyone there is like, I'm going to fucking kill Derek. They were, they were, they were, they hated my cuts, but everyone was, the actors were so sweaty for real and uncomfortable and uh, raw. And as a crew, we were too. And I'm, I'm, when I make things, I, I'm very much like, a, people have called me a method director. I believe in experience. And, you know, the crew, they might have been mad at me at that moment, but I think they all look back at that moment as, uh, as one of the great times. Sometimes hard moments that you go through become like the greatest stories that you tell. Um, but that was the kind of authenticity, I guess, that we were going for is, you know, let's go back in time. If we're going to be back in time, there's no air conditioning back in time. Let's, let's, let's live it as closely as we can. And then I was lucky enough to have actors who were just so on board with that um, and would settle for nothing less. Honestly, if I was to try to, um, you know, Marcello is so hardcore um, that if I was try if I would try to Hollywoodize it for him, he would, um, he would have rejected me and lost all respect for me. So I had to, I had to, I, I had to provide him a, a true experience. I'm curious when you're writing, how are you thinking about the visual style of how you want to tell the story? How early on are you thinking? Because with this project, you worked with a lot of close-ups. Um, there was a lot of close-ups, and mm -hmm. I loved it. But I'm just curious, when did you know that's how you wanted to tell the story, using close-ups? Are you thinking about that in the writing process, or is it when, you're, you know, when the script is done? I'm addicted to close-ups, first off. All of my films are pretty much consumed with close-ups because I just feel like I can't get... When I'm in a room with actors and things are happening, I just want to be in there with them. I just want to be... You know, I, I read one time that John Ford said that the most interesting landscape is that of the human face. And, uh, you know, and I try to balance my close-ups with some extreme wide shots, too, to just give you a sense of of environment um you know and Sergio Leone is like one of the great examples of using of this kind of visual dynamic of close to extreme wide and I've, all, I've always uh tried to live in that space I'm not much of one for being in a medium shot um when I see a medium shot I don't know it just looks a little bit I don't know I I don't know I guess it feels regular to me or something and I don't know. I, I part of my whole deal with with uh, performance is I want to I want to put people under a microscope. I want to put actors under a microscope. And so when I'm writing, I watch the movie in my head every day. This was one of the uh, disciplines I learned when I was trying to make Blue Valentine for twelve years. Right, twelve years. I'm I write Blue Valentine in the daytime. And I'm the and I think to myself, I'm going to be shooting this movie in three months. Three months would come up, and I wouldn't be shooting the movie. And so I started to to discipline myself with just watching the movie in the screen of my mind. So every day of those twelve years making Blue Valentine, I started to watch the movie, and it just be, become part of the process of me making films. Is when I'm writing or when I'm in pre production, I 
visualize the story and I try to meditate or whatever you want to say and, and go sit in a room and, and just, you know, I could be eating dinner with my family and they could be saying to me, where are you right now? And I'm just watching the movie, you know, <laughs> it's, ha it's happening. And um, I could be driving the car on the highway, seven, you know, 75 miles an hour and be thinking about the movie which sounds dangerous, but, um, that's, I just, that's just where my mind goes. Now, I, although I don't necessarily love storyboarding. Now I storyboard some things. There's been plenty of commercials that I've storyboarded. There's sometimes action scenes that you have to storyboard and really plan out, you know, the moments when Dominic and Thomas run across the road, you know, that has to be like planned out, you know, uh, to the millisecond, you know, what happens in those scenes. But, for the most part, I try to go on set after having visualized this thing and seeing it so clearly in my head. I try to go to on set with as wide open as I possibly can um, and open to discovery. Um, and I try to tell my actors to surprise me. That's what I want to, I, I, you know, I live with the script and with the movie for so long on my own. Once I get other people around me, I want them to show me their interpretation of it. You know, I'm so I'm fascinated with actors. So one of those things that I do with the close-up is I try to put the camera away from the actors so they can have some, uh, so they don't, so they forget about the camera. I think Ryan Gosling one time said uh, to an interviewer, he said, most movies you have to pretend that you're, you have to pretend that it's real. And he said, on my movies, he has to always remind himself that it's just a movie. Um, so I try to put the camera in a place where it's not going to be obtrusive with the actors, but it's just like a loving friend that's in the room observing and witnessing and experiencing with, with the actors. And then from that place that I find the camera, I, I'm, I'm just addicted to going longer on the lens and to experience and experience this world from this kind of disembodied point of view, I guess it is. Um, and, you know, you could talk to my DP, Jody Lee Lipes, uh, uh, you know, on set, he would sometimes force me into doing a wide shot. And every time he did, I was very thankful for it, but it's just the way I see the world. If, you know, if you and me were in a real room and not on a zoom meeting right now, I would be, my eyes would be in close up on you. It's just the way I, I, I see things. It's just the, you know, I'm kind of consumed with details in, in people's, the things that aren't said, you know, in, in conversations, uh, the moments between moments. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with trying to be inside the soul and the psyche of a, of a person. And I just think the close up helps me, helps me get there. Sure. What about, um, I've spoken to a bunch of filmmakers and sometimes they have, you know, obviously multiple cameras shooting a scene. And then, mm -hmm. I, you know, I talked to Roger Deakins and he talks about how it's just one camera on set, no matter yeah. what movie he's making. Blade Runner, you name it. It's just one mm -hmm. camera where he places it. Yeah. So how often are you doing, having multiple cameras in a scene or is it just usually one camera at all times? You know, it, it depends on the scene and it depends on the, the, the project, um, the film that I'm making. Now there's certain, you know, I've shot, you know, for instance, Blue Valentine, the story of Michelle and Ryan falling in love was all shot with one camera, handheld, one lens, 
one point of view. The second part of that movie, the part of them falling out of love, was about individuals. It wasn't about this union of two people coming as one into one camera. It was about these people being separated in their space with two cameras. And so two cam I shot that with two cameras cross coverage, and that became very uh, informative and important. And aesthetically, it it allowed me to separate them in the space. And so I did utilize a lot of two camera coverage in this show because I was shooting so much improvisation, right? And, you know, when I hear that about Deacons, it, it makes sense because Deacons feels very, very controlled, right? And one thing I'm trying to do as a filmmaker is balance control with chaos, right? And so if I have Rosie O'Donnell and Mark Ruffalo in a scene together, and they're two heavyweight champs, right? Uh, and Rosie is a really hard person to fight with, right? Because she's fought with a lot, a lot of people. She's, she's had a lot of battles in her life, right? And she knew that character of Lisa Sheffer because she had a social worker that was very important to her and her upbringing. And she has five kids and she's just been in that place. So she knows that, that story and that character. And, I, and she's a comedian and she's quick on her feet. So I can go into that room and if I have a camera on Rosie and a camera on Mark, I can get them to explode my script and to find these discoveries that could only happen one time. And if you're shooting this kind of di these kind of dialogue scenes with one camera, and I've done it plenty of times in my life, uh, you, have to, you have to kind of build it again in the edit because you try to rebuild these fleeting moments. And so if I shoot a scene with Rosie and Mark, you know, that's a 10 minute scene and I shoot for four hours with them and I had one camera, I got four hours on Mark. I got to go another four hours to get Rosie's side. And some of those little, what I call them is like Haley's Comet moments, the moments that pass by the screen and are so rare and precious that they, it takes another 80 years to get them again. Sure. If I have two cameras, I can catch Haley's Comet at the same time. I can catch both sides of it. I can catch, because part of what I do as a director is I really work with through actors, right? A lot of my direction, if I want something out of Mark Ruffalo, I don't always tell him what I want. Sometimes I tell Rosie what I want. So when Mark is coming into her office and demanding that Thomas sees a doctor and gets tested for HIV, and he's being really harsh with her. Um, I sense to myself, this is imbalanced. And I, so I, I'll tell Rosie, are you going to let him talk to you like that? This is, this is your office, right? And, and that's all of a sudden all that Rosie needs. And then she comes back and fights and attacks him. And so I, I work that way with actors. But I, sometimes I need those two cameras to, to get those moments. Because you can't, you know, the first time that she will unleash that her um, and like the first time that she comes in and like surprises him with like, Hey, wait a minute. I'm not a, I'm not a gal. Okay. A gal is what you call someone's horse. There's, there's only one true reaction that I'm going to get to that. Right. The rest of it is going to be acting, right. Or performance. But Mark's reaction to Rosie saying that the first time is going to be behavior. And so what I try to capture with my camera is behavior. And so two cameras sometimes can be very, very, very helpful with that. 
uh, Mark had to put on some weight. Uh, you yeah. shot all the stuff with him thin. He has to put on weight. You got you coming back and filming. Uh, when you're carrying that much extra weight, I, um, I would imagine a lot of people get in a bad mood because they're not mm. feeling as good because you literally are putting a lot more pressure on your body. Did you yeah. notice any sort of change with Mark once you put on that weight? That oh, yeah. You know? But it was the opposite because here's the thing. Um, again, this goes to this goes to behavior. When when I started, when Mark and I first talked about these characters, I said, "If I don't want to, I don't want to be embroiled in a technical movie, right? If we're going to do this, it has to, and you're going to play twins. Let's think about it. When you're born, when these two twins are born, they look exactly the same. They're identical twins, but they have." 40 years of different life experience, 40 years of choices and of consequence to their actions. So when we meet up with them, they're going to look different. And Thomas is on these antipsychotic drugs. And the people that I know who have gone through that have put on weight. They put on water weight with the medication. So Thomas, at the very least, is going to be heavier than Dominic. Um, and so Mark agreed to do to do this process and so we decided that the best way to do it was to have him as Dominic to lose weight so he lost like 20 pounds to play Dominic and you know he showed he was he he was on like a strict like thousand or like 1100 calorie diet a day sure. and so he was you know the expression hangry yeah. He was hangry all the time. And that added to Dominic's angst, right? That added to this kind of alpha male, just uncomfortable quality that he had. And and it was from day one, it was it, he was on with that, you know. So the so the physical uh thing changed his performance. And then one other thing I started to do with him on set was I started to ask him to do push-ups. Um <laughs> And he, and Mark's a good guy, so he just goes along with it. But, after, you know, I was doing like a phone call scene with him and uh, Juliet Lewis, and it wasn't really happening. And so I just said, can you do 50 push-ups? So he dropped to the ground, did 50 push-ups. He came up, he did the scene. And it was it was actually the cut that made it in the movie. Um, he was like a little out of breath. And, and he was smoking cigarettes, and his chest was kind of puffed out. And... Um, and I thought it was so fascinating that it, it 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 tuned him into this dominant character who's kind of desperate for breath and you know the traditional male with like the big pectoral muscles he was and so that became our go to for Dominic like anytime I needed to get mark in the pocket with Dominic I'd have him do push ups and there was times when he was doing four or five hundred push ups a day because it was just like you know do another fifty and he he questioned it at the beginning, but eventually. You know, if he wasn't getting a scene, he would be like, maybe I should do push-ups. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and it was it was the instant way for him to get into Dominic. Now, at the end of those, like, 16 weeks that we shot with him as Dominic, he was ready to go off and be Thomas. And we had a lot of stuff to still shoot. You know, we had six weeks of shooting. We had to shoot the kids. We had to shoot the teenagers. And we had to shoot Grandpa's story. And so Mark went off and he was excited that he could go finally eat like a bowl of pasta or have a donut. Um, but that lost its luster. Like after the second day, um, he became so miserable um, because uh, 
because his body just wasn't used to all this calories. You know, he went from eating a thousand calories a day to like 4,500 calories a day. And, um, you know, he eventually got to the point where he was like, he could only sleep if he was sitting up in a chair. Um, so he was calling me and, and basically saying, I don't know D if I can do this. Um, why don't I just put on like a, fat suit or something to play Thomas. And, and I just encouraged him to stay with it. I said, look, as much as Dominic's weight loss and hangriness and, you know, push-ups added to that character, Thomas is going to feel a different way. And again, I'm interested in your behavior, not your performance as much. And sure enough, Mark showed up on set as Thomas and he was like over 30 pounds heavier. And he, you know, we had gotten the scene all set up and we were ready to shoot and he wouldn't come out of his trailer. And, you know, the, it, which is totally unlike Mark Ruffalo to do like a, a diva move like that. Um, and so I went back to his trailer. You know, I've had to rescue plenty of actors from their trailer in my time, but never Mark. And I, you know, knocked on his door and he was, the guy who I saw in that room couldn't have been further from Dominic. He was vulnerable. He was soft. He was scared out of his mind. He was insecure. He didn't have any confidence. He didn't know if he could do it. I spent about an hour with him. We watched The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Um, I eventually brought him out to set, and I'll never forget that moment, walking with Mark on set as he, like, shuffled behind me and feeling the awe and the gasp from the crew as he arrived on set. No one knew who he was. We all, everyone on the crew thought Mark was Dominic because he's so method. He was like Dominic all the time. And now he shows up as this other guy, Thomas, and, you know, no one could look at him. And he sat down in the seat and we were started to shoot this, the second side of the scene. And it was, um, and, you know, before we started to shoot, it was actually on September 11th. 2019 that we shot the first day with Thomas and he sat down and seen in the scene and my assistant director said let's do a, a prayer you know moment of silence for September 11th and so we all did there was a moment of silence and after about a minute we heard this voice and it was Mark as Thomas saying a prayer for America and it was just so poignant and uh, kind of haunting because here we were telling the story that took place in the early 90s about a guy who tried to end the wars in the Middle East by sacrificing his own, by sacrificing himself. And here we were 40 years later, still with the reverberation of everything that happened on September 11th, which was a reverberation of everything that happened in, in the 90s in, in the Middle East. And here we had this guy who, who all of a sudden wasn't your, our, the crazy character. He was the prophet to us. He was, he was the truth. And so we all decided we, that Thomas wasn't the person we were going to look at as, as like a syndrome or a, a sickness, that he was just a, a, a man. And uh, anyway, you know, it's, it's that's that's kind of the alchemy that I'm really interested in as a filmmaker is what happens when you start mixing these different elements together 
Um, what effect do they have? And I could go into a pitch meeting with HBO and tell them what the movie is going to be and they could buy it. But then I start this process and there's this alchemy that happens and something happens that none of us have expected and it takes on its own life. And that's my favorite part about being a filmmaker is to, uh, is to be a part of that alchemy. Sure. The, um, the actor, I want to make sure I get the name right. I think his name's Philip Ettinger. Yeah. The one who plays the, the the college student version of uh, Dominic and Thomas. Um, He did a phenomenal job as well. Yeah, he's an amazing, amazing actor. I felt like I was working with James Dean, reincarnate. I, I, I was really blown away by his work. So I'm curious if you could talk about how you found him and mm-hmm. just and, and working with him to do those scenes. Yeah, my my good friend Braden King, a filmmaker, had shot a movie called The Evening Hour with Phil. And I had never heard of Phil before. And then one day I was watching First Reformed, Paul Schrader. And Phil has this one scene in that movie really and it was the greatest performance I'd seen in a decade you know in that one scene and I called up Braden and I was like is that the guy you worked with <laughs> and Braden says yeah and I was like dude now I know why you picked him because this guy's the greatest actor of all time and so I set up to meet with him and you know we met at a at a pie shop in Brooklyn and Phil told me that Mark Ruffalo was always his favorite actor and that he had met him backstage. And Mark was one of the reasons that Phil became an actor and that people his whole life had always told him that he was kind of like Mark, like a young Mark Ruffalo and Phil also, and he's talked about this. That's why I feel comfortable talking about it. Had an, had an older brother that um, suffered with schizophrenia. And so he knew he had this experience that he could really draw from. And put, again, part of what I do is in casting is try to cast actors that can be the experts, right, of, of their own experience and that they can create these characters that are part them and part the character that I've written. Um, and so there's a little bit of a documentary aspect to it. And so Phil and I talked a lot about his experience of being – the brother of someone who was dealing with that and um and also his observations of his brother and you know his brother ultimately like we shot with him he was like an extra in a scene he was great helpful guy the whole time and um and he's doing he's doing pretty well right now and and uh and so phil just was brave enough to draw on his own personal experience uh with that character and he really he was you know we shot he was our first sighting of Thomas Phil was because Mark hadn't shot Thomas yet. We had shot all the 16 weeks with Mark as Dominic and then Mark went away and here comes Phil and Phil had been studying what Mark had done as Dominic. I'd given him a bunch of dailies and he'd been studying Mark's Dominic, but we still hadn't seen Thomas yet. And so Phil came out with a brand new Thomas that we, that none of us knew how Thomas was going to be, but Phil showed us. Mark, I started, as I was shooting Phil, I started sending Mark Phil's performance of Thomas, and Mark started studying what Phil did as Thomas to inform his version of Thomas. So it was it was such a beautiful collaboration that way. And everyone, all the actors were so respectful and um, 
it's just a gift, you know, of, of each other. And anyway, yeah, Phil, he's, he's a real treasure. Like I said, I really did feel like I was working with uh, a modern James Dean. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the things that the that your film or series does so well is the progression of watching Thomas, uh, the progression of what happens to him. You know, it's not just yeah. this overnight thing. It's uh, yeah. you can see the 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 illness, you know, take hold, and you know what I mean. You you watch yeah. the whole thing unfold, and that's one of the reasons. It's, you know, again, what you can't accomplish this in a two-hour movie and why it's so effective as a series like this. Yeah, for sure. And Phil knew that because he had experienced it himself. So he knew what that process could look like. And uh, yeah, so, so, so thankful. Phil's a little taller than Mark. And uh, so the only challenge on set was to give all the other actors five-inch lifts <laughs> and so John Procaccino, who's like six foot four, was walking around set at six foot nine. And uh uh but anyway, it's just that's, uh, fun. that's a that's a nice behind the scenes fact. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um so I have uh, a few other questions I want to ask you about. Yeah. Um which uh um whatever happened to a cotton candy autopsy? Still working on it. Okay. So it's yes. been almost a decade. <laughs> Yes, longer than that. I mean, I, I first gotten, uh, wanted to make Cotton Candy Autopsy in 1991 when I first got the Mr. Bungle self-titled debut album. And the, the cover art on that album was from Cotton Candy Autopsy. And so I reached out to those guys not long after. And, and it's just, you know, that's just a, a, a giant, uh, it's, it's just one of those long, I'll make it before I die. And and hopefully soon, sooner rather than later. But I've written a script with my wife, uh, Shannon, who's a clown. And, you know, we're really, you know, I, 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 you know, we talk about horror movies, but something else I really want to do is like, I spend more of my time laughing than I do like uh, being serious or in dramatic moments in my life. So I'm, I'm, and my wife's a comedian. And so we, we have been dying to do something funny and, uh, but this is, it's a story really about assimilation and it's about these, these clowns who are trying to become normal and to assimilate back in, into normal society. Um, but it's impossible. It's impossible if you're a clown. Do you find this, to, this would be a movie or do you think it's more of a series? We'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in, you know, I just literally finished, I know this much is true. So that is one of those uh things that's been a film forever in my mind and i'm i'm just i'm right now just open to to what else it could be you know so we'll we'll see uh what kind of life do you think dane dehan went on went off and led at the end of place beyond the pines that see that's an that's another idea of of this open ending that i you know that i tried to do at the end of i know this much is true with dominic and dessa what happens to them at the end of I Know This Much Is True? I have my ideas. What happens to Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams when they separate and walk off into their separate ways at the end of Blue Valentine? What happens to Dane at the end of Pines? I I have my own ideas, but I don't want to say it because if I would have said it, I would have made it. And I want audiences to write their own endings. Again, 
that's this is what I try to think of as a as an audience member. Is I love having my own imagination in a movie. So there's not it's almost like fan fiction at that point. Sure. By by the way, I, I think that and you said it earlier in this interview, but the audience's imagination will always be more powerful than anything you put on screen. I agree. It's you it's know? the shark and jaws. I was literally going to say that. It's like it's yep. always going to be more powerful. Um, yep. I, we talked a while ago, and I'm curious, whatever happened to Metalhead? Metalhead uh, became Sound of Metal, which is... Yeah. Literally, I wanted to ask you yeah. that. Yeah, so, so, yeah. Because I saw Sound of Metal at TIFF and was yeah. like, this is Metalhead. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was, you know, I started making Metalhead from 2007, right when my son Cody was born. He's 13 now. Um, until a couple months before I made Blue Valentine and spent a year, two years shooting and editing Blue Valentine, came out of that, and I had Place Beyond the Pines ready to go. When I came out of Place Beyond the Pines, I went back to Metalhead, which I had been shooting with this band, Jucifer, um, almost like a hybrid doc, and I realized it wasn't... uh, I wasn't going to be able to finish it the way that I had started it. I had just become such a different person and I needed to, um, but I wanted it to get made still. I thought it was still a valuable story. And so my buddy Darius was looking for a film to make. And so I put it up for adoption. You know, I put it up for adoption and he raised it and I'm so proud of him for what he has been able to do with it. And it's so nice to see a film that, you know, I mean, it's one of the one of the great uh, one of the things I love about where I'm at in my life right now is the ability to help other filmmakers get their visions out into the world. Uh, you know, I've been, you know, there's, you know, Darius has his film. My wife has been making stuff that I've been helping her go with. There's other, you know, younger filmmakers that I've been, you know, trying to mentor and. You know, I'd, I'd really like to not only, you know, because I, I'm so slow between my movies. You know, I've, it, you by know, the way, the four year, four years between every project. Yeah, basically. something like that. So, you know, in those times, though, I'd love, you know, and I just know what it takes for me to make something so I can help other people get stuff going. And if I can have ideas, you know, I have a, the, they have a number of ideas. And if other people can take those ideas and run with them, then that's great. You know, as long as those ideas get to be realized, you know, cause that was my biggest fear with metalhead at one point. It's like, is this idea just going to turn into smoke? Um, and so I'm thankful Darius adopted that kid and, and, and raised it, raised it well. Yeah. I, I thought he did a really good job at showing what it was like for someone. You've seen it obviously. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought he did a really good job uh, visualizing what someone was going through. And I thought Riz did a great job with his performance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You know what? One of the first uh, inspirations for that movie was for me was Nicholas Philibert did a documentary about uh, a deaf world, a deaf community. Uh, Nicholas Philibert, who made To Be and To Have. um, And, uh, you know, and then I also think about all those movies I used to watch with bracket, you know, brackage movies like The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes and silent movies. Sure. Um, and just the idea of playing with uh, your senses in a movie was was an idea of losing a sense 
um, you know, in, in your life. And, you know, me, I'm a drummer. So I'm, I'm like halfway gone <laughs> with, with my hearing. My tinnitus is so bad. Um, so it's, yeah. Anyway. No, I, I, uh, well, I don't want to say too much more about it. Yeah. Eventually people are going to see it, but, um, yeah. uh, have, uh, Gosling and Eva Mendez ever thanked you for introducing them? Oh, I don't know about that. I, you know, I've, I've thanked them. I've thanked them a bunch for sure. For By the way, I'm just fucking with you, but you being know, two I mean. of the most beautiful people I know, and and uh, you know, it was amazing shooting that movie and seeing seeing them together. You know, it was it was like really, really beautiful, beautiful experience, and I'm I'm so happy for them. You know, I, and can't wait I, to hopefully work with both of them again someday soon. Yeah, I would say that you and Ryan together have been okay. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, been, it's been all right. When are people going to be able to watch on streaming or see Brother Tide? I don't know. There's uh, I don't know. That's, that's, that's kind of a scary proposition. That's like the, uh, the juvenilia, you know. Maybe I have to be a little older for that to happen. Or someone has to come out and, and decide that they want to uh, option all those uh, 1950s doo-wop Christmas songs that I put in the soundtrack. Well, my my question for you is, so you have, who owns the rights? Do you own the rights to the film? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so basically it's a question of, because of the soundtrack, of ponying yep. up some cash. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I, I have the 35 millimeter print in my dad's basement in Colorado. So it's, yeah. So it's just a question of... There. Yeah. I mean, because it's, <laughs> There's fans of yours that have obviously never seen the movie. Um, yeah. And there's not much footage that is out there. So, know. Just, you know, it's, I'm I just know. curious. It's, I know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm open. If someone ever came out of the woodwork who wanted to, uh, to release that, I, I, I'd love to have a conversation with them. I'd love for, you know, people to see it. It's, you know, it's, uh, uh, it would be hard for me to watch it just because it, it represents a different era of, I mean, similar subject matter, but a different way in which I was making films at that time in my life. You know, that was, that was, I think, still when I was more egocentric as a filmmaker. Um, it was more about me at that time. Uh, you know, that was when I was in film school and when I thought that I was going to make the, you know, I'd heard The Wild Bunch had 1,600 edits and I thought that I could make a movie with more edits than the wild bunch. I mean, that was, and so that was like why I made that movie in a lot of ways was to cut more than the wild bunch. And, um, and I remember showing it at Sundance in 1998 and seeing that there was like six people in the audience. And I realized six people can't give a shit about my edits. And I started to realize that why did I go to, why did I love movies from the first place? And it was actors and so in all those years between Blue, uh, Brother Tide and Blue Valentine, I learned to, um, I learned what was always important to me about being a filmmaker. So yeah, it's, it's, it would be interesting. It'd be interesting. If someone wants to release it, yeah, it'd be awesome, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm, just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking there's something, if I remember correctly, there was a shot in through like a, a, a like a party scene where like the camera's on a dolly going through the party. I could be wrong about this. Yes, um, there was. Right. Okay. So I'm not I'm not mistaken on this. But I remember that shot being like, oh fuck, that is a cool shot. 
Yeah, you know? there was a lot of shots. We were doing like 70 setups a day on that. I was the DP. We had dolly tracks all over the place. We had like a little, you know, 12 person crew of, of, of all of our friends at the film school. And we were just living it, making a family, sure. making a movie. And it was, you know, it took like four and a half years to put it together. And yeah, it's a, it represents a certain time. Um, I think I would probably be ready with people seeing it if if uh, if someone wanted to to pony up. Um, uh, you know, um, I have to, I'm just throwing this out there because one of the um, we have a lot of people that work at Collider, and I ask people for questions. And something that people wanted to know was HBO is getting ready to do you know their series or their limited series of Parasite. And mm. uh, so the question is, of course, if they asked you to do an episode, would you be willing? All depends on availability and time and what I'm doing. You know, I mean, I obviously signed this deal with HBO, so I'm, and I love working with them. Um, and I have my own projects I'm going to be, you know, bringing to them and we'll see what, what happens with those. Um, yeah, I never say, I never say never. It's the, the difficult thing about jumping into a, uh, a show that's already like a, a, a perfect movie, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know what when necessarily I would add to it. I I always feel strange about making other people's movies because I I feel like every every filmmaker they make their own choices and I I love to see the choices they make and I and I don't I couldn't make their same choices but I couldn't I wouldn't want to change any filmmaker's choice that they ever make it either, you know. No, I get it. I, I do. Yeah. Um, I think that Bong has talked about how there was a lot of stuff that he wrote that obviously mm. didn't make the movie. Um, mm. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, he's very supportive of doing this series. Yeah, well, I'm sure. You, I'm sure. You know, um, it's, you know, um, but what, this is my basically my last thing for you because we've yeah. talked for 17 hours, but yeah. uh, I am curious, do you have a lot of scripts in the desk that you want to make? Do you have things that are sort of ready to go or do you sort of, and also like, obviously you signed the deal with HBO, you can do stuff, but like you just worked your ass off for the last few mm -hmm. years. Is it sort of like, I need months to like decompress? Even the things that I have in my desk. And yeah, I do have a number of scripts. I have cotton candy. I have empire of the summer moon. I have muscle. I have a lot. I have, I have other original projects that I've been working on. But even if I was to do one of those projects that the script is already written and I've already, you know, Empire of the Summer Moon written 30 drafts on it, I have to start over again because I'm a different person now than I was before I started, you know, before I started, I know this much is true. And when I go into it again, new, it's going to change. Um, and I have to kind of start all over again. So but at the same time, I'm I'm in the place now where I need to, you know, I make movies about family. And so I've been trying to just be with my my family. And, you know, I can't be hypocritical if I make movies about family. I My inspiration comes from being a father and a son. And uh, so, yeah, to use the metaphor, like, I feel like the well is pretty dry. And so I need it to, I need it to, to rain. A lot of people watching this and just, I think they don't realize the amount of time it takes to actually make a project, what it takes to film, what it takes to edit, and what sacrifices you have to make in your personal life to actually accomplish putting something like this on the screen. 
yeah. I mean, it's full on. It's my up until oh two weeks ago, it was seven days a week, twelve hours a day for twelve hours a day minimum for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Um. In in and it was a a blessing every moment. Every moment I felt like I was on vacation. So now is actually now that I'm done with it. Now I have to go back to work, and I have to figure out what I'm going to do again. Right now, now the work starts, um, and it is. It's a lot and it's relentless, but it's a blessing because this is you know this is this is like my dream since I was since I can remember dreaming was that I would make movies or you know to tell stories uh, on film uh you know tv shows whatever um uh and so i take every moment and every chance i get and every opportunity i get i don't um i take it as a real blessing and uh and a joy yeah look i'm i'm super happy you made something with hbo or some deal because uh you know i want you making more projects and yeah. obviously you are um what we call a talented filmmaker so don't I rush me steve say it again don't rush me Right. <laughs> well, hopefully it will be faster than four years, but I also yes. understand that uh, you got to spend time with your family and stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, my, my oldest son's 16 years old, so that, that happens quick, man. Yeah, I, well, I don't know what that's about, but I get what you're saying. Yes. Um, on that note, I'm just going to say thank you so much for talking uh, with me for 17 hours. And yes. uh, please pass on to your family that I said thank you. Um, yes. For real. I'm going to go get the chicken off the grill now. Right, exactly. And uh, listen, man, um, again, congrats on the series. Man, good to see you again. Yeah, nice, nice to see you in cyberspace. Yes. All right, you know? next time, next time face-to-face, okay, when the world comes back to something. It's that little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys? Let's go! I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba da ba ba ba. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.